I'm Jeff Cohen. Today we're going to cover two of my favorite topics, Judaism and basketball. Our guest today, Daniel Tamir, knows a lot about both. At 6 foot 10 inches tall, Daniel played professional basketball for seven years in Israel and Hungary. But there's more to his story than dunks, dribbling, and three-pointers. Let's hear how sports plays into his Jewish journey. Daniel, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So before we even start, I have to tell you, I'm 6'2", and I feel like everybody I meet is always talking to me about what it's like being so tall. I have to believe you hear a lot more about this than me being 6'10". Uh, I hear it all the time, every single day, even when I walk to the grocery store. I have guys asking me, what's the weather out there? How tall are you? Did you play basketball? I was actually thinking about making a business card with all these questions and answers and just give it away to people who ask. <laughs> yes, I definitely hear that every single day. So do you find it frustrating or you're kind of used to it and it just comes with the territory of being tall? I really think there's two ways you can take height. One way is to kind of isolate yourself and, and not like the feedback and the conversations. Or you can make it fun and then bubbly and, you know, just have fun with the, the answers and the questions and take it as just a part of who you are. And that's really what I'm trying to do. So where are you talking to me from today? So right now I'm actually in Boca, uh, Miami. We're doing recruitment actually for one of our summer programs, uh, NCSY Jump Shot. And I actually just finished a clinic with the Boca kids. We had a lot of fun. We talk a bit about life lessons and we play some ball. And uh, now I'm sitting in our uh, office here. Okay, beautiful. So you're in Florida today, but I know that is not where your story begins. So give our listeners a sense of where your journey starts. Where were you born and raised? So I was born and raised in Jerusalem. I grew up in a neighborhood called Kiryat Yovel, which is a completely secular neighborhood back then. Now it's much more religious, actually. I grew up to a basketball family. I have a brother who's 6'11", who played 20 years professionally, almost made it to the NBA. A dad who used to play as well. So really sports was really heavy in our, in our home. And um, yeah, grew up in secular schools there and then started my journey. So the fact that you were in Israel, though, I think when a secular Jew grows up in the United States, they often don't know a lot about Jewish customs. But you're in Israel, so are you seeing more about what's going on with Orthodox people and all the holidays? Like, how knowledgeable are you about that lifestyle as a kid? My mom is Moroccan, and she was really good in just showing us the holidays and and keeping certain traditions. But it was mostly just tradition. It was not really from a religious standpoint. And I think even from the way we were raised, it was... Uh, almost a separation between the secular and the religious and it came to the extent that if we would walk in the street and see a religious person i would walk to the other side of the street but i knew what what it's about so the fact there was this kind of separation what was your perspective as a kid on orthodox judaism I think that from my surrounding and my upbringing around the circles I was growing up with, with sports and with secular schools, they really teach you that, uh, they don't officially teach you that, but the, the sense is that Orthodox Jews do not work, they don't pay taxes, they don't go to the army, they don't serve the country in the same way, so that's why you should not be so friendly or we should take some distance or everything is an obligation and is always forbidden, so that was not for us. That was the, the general idea. So this will be really interesting as your story unfolds because you have this perception of Orthodox Judaism as a kid and clearly it's going to change if you became a member of the club as you got older. Yes, it's really, that was an interesting baseline to begin from, but really it transformed completely, I think, uh, to this day. 
Okay, so before we get to that story, you mentioned you grew up in a basketball family. So is there an age, even when you were young, where you thought basketball could actually be my career, as opposed to me, who finished at the varsity level knowing I was not going to be making money playing basketball, it wasn't going to be a career for me. But for you, growing up in that family, did you think you had the potential to take it all the way? So really growing up, my brother was always out there playing. He ended up going and playing for Cal Berkeley, and he was really a high-level player there as well. And when I was five or six years old already, I remember playing in the backyard, and he would come, and he would just block every single shot. And then he would walk <laughs> away to practice or whatever it may be. And I would go and imagine myself playing against Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, and I would just shoot all day. I think they do it in America as well. But when you go to first grade, they ask you what do you want to be when you get old so everyone comes in like a firefighter like a doctor or a police officer i came in with a jersey a basketball and i said to everyone i'm <laughs> going to be young gay so that was really my vision and it's a vision that sticked with me all the way even till my early years of professional playing wow so at that young age though were you already taller than most of the kids or, or were they laughing at someone saying i'm going to be a professional basketball player so I was always taller. I grew up, you know, as this giant kid in class that always when you take those class pictures, you see someone who's the height of the teacher. And I was also very fat growing up. So always there was this conversation of trying to tease me and trying to mock me. And as a very big kid, you have to learn how to deal with that. And I think that sports really saved me in a lot of places that otherwise I would just go and use it for, for bad behavior or bad influence. What's the age where you start to realize, you know what, I might have something here and this could actually become a reality? So coming up to seventh grade, I was always playing with a year or two years above my age every time because I was so tall, because I was the brother of. So I was always projected to be this very good basketball player. And they kept trying to advance me. I got to seventh grade and all of a sudden we do the drills and we do our practices and I'm very, very heavyweight and I cannot move up and down the court. I would just stop every few minutes, sit on the sideline. And I kept hearing this noise around me of, oh, you're going to be better than your brother. You're going to be in the NBA. You're going to be an exceptional player. You're going to be the next big star. And I said to myself, you know, enough is enough. I cannot run. I need to take it a bit more seriously. And I went to every single one of my coaches, actually, at the end of uh, my seventh grade. And I just took a pen and pencil and wrote drills of things that I want to do in the summer. From athletic drills, from going through ball handling and shooting and driving, really every, every aspect of the game. And for a full summer, I really dedicated myself. I think it was the best, most productive summer I ever had. And I just transformed my game. I would come up every day from three to five and just work on my game in an outside court on cement and then have all my friends join and we'll play pickup until 8 or 8.30 p.m. Every day for that summer. I finished that summer and all of a sudden my brother came for a visit from Cal and he looks at me and he didn't recognize me. He didn't know I was his brother until he saw like, okay, this is Daniel. I think from there it really took a completely different trajectory. By the way, how is your English so good? Were you learning while you were in Israel? My English actually... You know, growing and seeing my brother played in uh, in the college basketball, waking up sometimes in the middle of the night and hearing the broadcast in English or listening to the music. You know, I think back then it was like Eminem and the Backstreet Boys and the Five and different bands that my brother listened to or didn't listen to. And I decided I wanted to listen only to English music. And I would watch even shows and I would try to match the subtitles to the speaking. 
And for some reason, I just had a, a click with the English language. When I first came to America, I actually would speak almost like a robot. So, hi, my name is Daniel Tamir, I'm six foot ten. Then slowly as I learned, you know, in school and when I started my professional career, then the English improved. Okay, so now let's go into the high school years and give our listeners a sense of where are you at in terms of Judaism or where are you at in terms of basketball and what you're thinking about your future? Uh, so Judaism is a short answer because there wasn't much, meaning obviously when there's Rosh Hashanah, Passover, the, the main holidays, we would go and have a family meal and then we'll go drive and do whatever we want to do, watch a movie, whatever it is, like secular life. And when it comes to basketball, really after that seventh grade, all of the sudden they started really advertising a lot about me and becoming the next big player. And I started winning championships in Israel and really started to lead my local teams in Jerusalem. I played in Apollo, Jerusalem since I was six up until professional. And then I was called up to play with the Israeli national team when I was 14 years old. And usually you have the under 16, the under 18 teams, and I made all of them even as a year younger. And really starting to establish myself as a dominant player. And these years I was considered like the best center in, in my age and also in my age above me. And I found myself going to the Nike camp in Paris when I was 16 years old and playing with guys like Ricky Rubio, Enes Kanter, Jonas Valanciunas, and a lot of these guys. I was actually roommate with uh, Thomas Satoransky, who still plays uh, in the league. At that point, I was really at the peak of squaring up towards my expectations and actually living up to all the hype that was around me. Got it. And so you're rooming with these guys and you're thinking, I'm going to be just like them. We're all going to be in the NBA in whatever, three, four, five years. Or are you thinking you want to stay in Israel and, and like keep progressing there? So the way I saw it, I thought that I would like to go ahead and start a professional career. I really felt that I'm competing with all these guys head to head. And it, even when we went to the national championships, it was always a clash. I was always playing with these guys and giving them, you know, it's, it's an equal match. And to me, I felt that playing professionally in Israel, even for a season or two, and going through the army and finishing that process, and then from there being able to be recruited to the NBA, that, that was to me the, the journey that I thought made the most sense. My brother went through the journey with the college basketball, and he actually, after his third season in Cal Berkeley, he was picked up by the Orlando Magic behind Dwight Howard. He didn't get much playing time and then he ended up moving to Europe. He thought he'll go only for one year and then come back to, to the NBA. It never happened. My brother is 6'11 and had 40% career shooting from three. So he was a unique player from that age. It was really the centers would sit under the bed uh, rim and would really, you know, post up. And that was the type of play. And I was much more that type of player than him. But seeing him going through the college route, I think at some point I just said to myself, let me try to develop like a professional career. And then from there, I'll be called upon when it's time. Okay, so what's the chain of events? You finish high school and then you have to do the army and that's like a break from basketball or you can play while you're, while you're doing your army service? So while you're in the army, you're actually getting a specific status, especially if you play for the national team and it's called exceptional athlete. And what they do is they either give you small roles, which a lot of players tend to take, which is go fix up a fence, go clean up the base once a month and you're not really coming to the, to the army and not doing something meaningful. Uh, and that's how you fulfill your obligation to the to the country. You do the basic training, so you learn how to shoot, how to fight, but not much more than that. 
for some reason, again, I see it now as Ashgaha Pratit, as um, Hashem taking care of me and watching me, but they offered me to be something that's called a soldier teacher. And I chose to go that route. And that means that we had six more weeks of training, of informal education, and learning how to deal with kids from all sects and all communities. And I worked with kids at risk in boarding schools. And I would come there five days a week, and I would be almost like a counselor for them. And that's where I think I started doing some basketball programs for them. And I realized the power of using basketball to actually impact others. Right, which has a lot to do with what you're doing now, which I know we'll get into later in the interview. Okay, so you're doing the army service, but they're giving you the opportunity to continue developing your basketball career. And then as that finishes, now you progress with the Israel team. Is that what happens next? So when I was 18, I was picked up by the professional team of Apollo Jerusalem. I started training with them when I was already in my junior, my uh, end of junior and, and senior year. And then they signed me up on a professional contract when I was 18. And I started uh, playing with these ex-NBA players, with uh, guys who end up going to the NBA afterwards. And uh, it was a really nice experience. But after a sudden, you get this shock of, wow, I'm playing against real professional players. That's really special. And I had a chance to, to really just go through the army and be able to play on, the, on a few different teams. And as I finished the army, I decided, you know what, I also need to, to study just to make sure that I have also proper education. So in Israel, you, you basically go ahead and it's a symbolic thing that you do is you cut the, the card that shows that you're a soldier. So I cut the card and then I literally took a taxi, went to the university, signed up myself to study economics. And, and continued playing, continued with my one basketball journey. And you just mentioned that you got to play with some people either were formerly in the NBA or were going to end up there. So who are like some of the names that you were maybe in awe of and then realized you could keep up with them? The first season I got uh, to Apoel, I got a player that's named, his name is Brendan Hunter, who looks like uh, combined me and you together. And that's pretty much the, the size of the guy. <laughs> Craig Smith, who used to play for, uh, I think, Portland Trailblazers at the Clippers. We had Samardo Samuels, who was also a big, phenomenal player. Uh, Roger Mason Jr., who played for the Spurs. The one that might be the most recognized is Nate Robinson. So these are maybe some of the names. Did you overlap at all with the Amari Stoudemire years when he finished his career and came out to Israel? I must say that I wish I would have the chance to do that. But when I retired that following season, then he came to Israel. That was his first year. So when you see these players that some of them you, you've known from afar and you know how good they are and you step on the court with them the first time, are you thinking like, I know I'm good, but I'm about to find out if I'm on the level of these players that are doing it professionally. Like, what is that experience like of going from being a fan of people to having to compete against them? When I grew up, when I was five, six years old, and I would see my brother taking me to the the, the gym for Apollo Jerusalem and playing with the guys and getting to, to shoot around with them, it was always to me something that was very highly regarded. They looked like heroes to me. And then when I got there and I actually played with them, it was, wow, I'm here. So I look to the right, I look to the left, and I sit next to them in the locker room and I get to hear their experiences. I played with LeBron and it was one, two, and three, and I played with this guy, <laughs> such and such. It's uh, it felt surreal for uh, in the beginning, but once you get used to it after the first few weeks, after the first month or so, then it really comes to the the work of you know refining your craft, becoming a better player, being able to actually compete with them, being able to actually dominate against them. It becomes a whole different mindset and a different perspective. Yeah, because I think about when you watch the NBA and you'll see two players who might be 15 years apart, and you realize that. 
one of them probably grew up idolizing the other and now they're competing against each other. It must take a period of time where you go from, wow, I, I used to look up to this person to now I have to beat him on the court. It must be a very strange feeling. It is a strange feeling. Uh, but for me, I had, you know, some of the guys that played with my brother in the national team, they knew me from being young and being the brother of. And of the sudden, you know, I would start pushing them or I would hit an elbow in, in someone's rib and they're like, whoa, you became a man, huh? And then they would push me back. <laughs> but I really think that one of the things that I realized was of the sudden, they're much more physical than me. They're much more athletic than me. I'm a kid. You know, okay, I'm 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, and they're in their 30s or in their late 20s, and they have a body of an adult. And it, we, we call that grown man's strength. And of the sudden, you have these guys who just hold you with their forearm and you cannot move when you're trying to run around them. Uh, so it was, it was a nice process. Okay, so you end up playing seven years professionally. It's in Israel and Hungary? Yes, yeah, so I played five years, I think, in Israel. And then I went and played in Hungary. I have a dual citizenship, so I was able to, to play as a local. And actually there, you know, I see it now in hindsight, but there really when the, the tshuva process started to, to stir, and I'm sure we'll touch upon it a bit later, but basically one of my best seasons as a professional and also one of the, the best experiences I've had. Just you go to a country that's supposed to be a very anti-Semitic country, and of the sudden they call you Daniel the big Jew and you become this this guy like this character of the big Jew that goes ahead and pushes everyone and then plays really well and becomes one of the best players for his position in the league it was a very nice process and you just see the love and the the respect that European communities have for the for basketball it was a 70,000 people community or city and all of them were obsessed with the sport. Okay, and so you just opened the door to the Jewish journey part of your story, because up until this point, I think our listeners are hearing a guy who's exceptional at basketball and is saying that religion is playing a very small role in his life. So what is that moment or two that things start to change where religion becomes a bigger piece of your journey? Once I, I think I hit my, uh, when I was 21 years old, I started going a year after the army, started going to, uh, to America and running sport programs in the summer. So I was able to, off the sudden, get a new experience of what is being Jewish, what is being someone who's also successful, who also keeps the tradition, who also have the family values and goes to work and support his family and builds whatever he's trying to build. And I saw it off the sudden in a different light. And when I went to, to Hungary, the only experience that I had for a Jewish holiday was Passover. In the whole West region of, of uh, Hungary, with 40 people that spoke mostly Hungarian, with a Haggadah that doesn't look like anything me and you know, and <laughs> it hit me like, okay, there's something too stained around what, uh, what and who we are. And I think in Hungary, I, I dated the six-foot, blue-eyed, blonde Hungarian model, and you know, I've been living there for the whole year and I get to meet the family and I get to experience time and we finished this, the year. And for me, this was Hashgacha Pratit story number one is that the league decided to change the rules that dual citizens can no longer play there as locals. So I found myself uh, negotiating and ended up signing back in Israel, uh, in Naharia, up in the north, also the, the top division. And I told her, listen, why would you come to Israel and come uh, visit, see if you like the country? And if you do, come and move, move in with me, live with me. After a full year of me spending time with family and everyone there, 
her parents tell her you would never step foot in Israel, you would never marry a Jew. Truth comes out, and of the sudden you understand, whoa, there's something about sticking within the Jewish community, there's something to be said. So that really started to just drift me a bit towards the Jewish world, but not in a sense of any religious practices, but just to that extent. And then from there, I just continued to, to my final season in Israel. And you mentioned something about going to the United States and doing basketball camps. Were you doing this for religious kids? Like, what were you seeing that was opening your eyes to, like, a different perspective on, on Judaism? So, I actually, we were, we were working with the modern Orthodox community for the most part. And I met a rabbi that up until this day, he's one of my uh, best friends. His name is Rabbi Gabi Danieli. He used to teach in Yeshiva University, and he now lives in Yerushalayim. And he's actually going to be a part of our program now in the summer as well. And he's like this Hasidish rabbi that has some influences from Chabad, from different Hasidists around the, around the world. And he showed me what passion is. And I would ask him all these questions about Shabbat and about religion and about tradition. And he would just explain to me in a very nice, coherent way and give me deep, nice answers. And it just kept me curious and it drawn me to, okay, let's sit now on a Shabbat meal and let's actually listen. And the first time I heard that Dvar Torah on a Friday night was with him on an industrial fridge sitting in a, in a college campus where we hosted it and, uh, and sharing the Dvar Torah there with, the, with a glass of wine for, for Shabbat. It was a very, very special moment. And then of the sudden... You say to yourself, okay, there's something here. But besides that, it was not more than uh, just being intrigued and being more respectful. Right, and that's what I find so interesting about your story. You're getting these little signs, these little pieces of your story you're sharing that all get you very curious about Judaism, but none of them yet make you want to like take something on, like keeping Shabbos or eating kosher. So how does your story advance from, I'm curious, I'm seeing Judaism in a new way, to, you know what, there could be something to actually living this lifestyle? So from that summer, when the whole story with Hungary happened, I signed up and I played for Naharia. And back in that year, I kept rolling my ankle. And my, at that point, I also lost my father. So it was a very challenging season from a lot of different aspects. And situation happened that Elliot Steinmetz reached out to me and he wanted me to come and play for Yeshiva University. Now, I knew some of the guys who used to work there, and I knew some of the players that were there, but I always told myself, like, this is Division Three basketball. I play professionally. What do I have to do with going back now there? But on the other hand, I said to myself, you know, I wanted to always live up to this American dream. I wanted to play in the NBA. Why won't I just listen and see what they have to say? Maybe, you know, going to New York and charting a new chapter when I really, you know, was in a, in a place to do that, I was intrigued. And we tried to go through the NCAA process and they immediately rejected us. They said, there's no chance. You played for too many years. You cannot do that. So Elliot came up with the idea of why don't you come and coach for us? Come be my, uh, my assistant coach and uh, let's go, let's do it. Uh, so I actually gave it a shot. I applied and I went through the visa process that you have to do as an Israeli and I got accepted. So I found myself at the end of the season with a visa to go to study in New York. And on the other hand, I was holding two offers from two teams in Israel. 
And what do you do now? So I spoke with my family, uh, you know, after it was still in the Shana Rishona, the first year of my uh, father's passing. And I asked my mom and I asked my sisters and my brother, do you think that it's okay if I go to New York, if I go forward with this next step? I didn't want to be a, something that I run away from something, but more of me, you know, moving forward to the next chapter in life. They all were super supportive and they all said, you have to do it. That's not even a question. So I called my agent, both of us with tears in our eyes and literally crying. Oh, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm retiring from basketball <laughs> right now. And he was crying and I was crying. And he said, you know, I'd go for a few years, maybe come back. And I took two suitcases and I just went on a plane to New York. And uh, OK, that was a new chapter that begins. OK, so what year is that? That was 2016. So like August 2016 is when I, I actually moved to, to New York. Okay, because I know fans of Yeshiva University's basketball team know the last few years for sure they've had like a really good run. So you're joining them like before they become like this exceptional team with these like unbelievable winning streaks? So when I joined them, it was just the rookie season for Donny Katz and for Simcha Halpert. And uh, it was really when the whole motion offense was really heavily introduced then. Elliot started it the year before, but it started to really take traction with Donny Katz, who was really a, an amazing, smart player that was almost like a quarterback on the court. And then Simcha Halpert, which bought into the process and said, you know, let's do it. And we had Baraluf who came in with me from Israel, actually. And just a lot of good guys that joined in and was willing to work hard and was willing to get better. And of the sudden, they see the six foot ten guy coming in and trying to teach them, uh, you know, a different approach to defense from what I did when I played. And they were intrigued and they were listening and they were growing. And alongside with the motion offense and with the culture that Elliot tried to, to breed in the players, it really started to become like a very, very special program. But we also knew that we we're not quite there yet with the pieces we had, but it was definitely getting there. So that first year, I think we made it to the playoffs. From there, it just became, you know, one big show and one big uh, Jewish fiasco, which a lot of good players started <laughs> to understand. Listen, there's a legit program in Yeshiva University, and we can get a good career playing college basketball, a lot of exposure, and then we can find ourselves going and playing Israel professional basketball. Okay, so I also, in researching you, there was a story about how you found that studying Torah somehow connected to more wins. Do you know what story I'm talking about? Absolutely. So I'll take you a step backwards just for, for how did I decide to listen to Torah. So when I first got to YU, I walk into to the Beit Midrash of in Yeshiva University, and you have the morning studies that you have to take every single day, and then go and study the secular courses. Now, you can imagine me, uh, you know, with a tank top and a mohawk on my head, walking into the Beit Midrash. <laughs> I knew what a kippah was, but there's no chance I'm putting one on my head. And I met Rabbi Shippo. Uh, he's uh, a well-respected rabbi in uh, the Upper West Side, and he has a lot of activities that he does, and he's also the head of JSS in Yeshiva University. And we look at each other, I look at him, I greet him, he greets me, I walk to one direction, he goes to the other direction. But I did remember his warmth and his caring and his love. And Rabbi Gabi Danieli was also there, the one that I mentioned earlier. And he just, you know, kept me in the loop, come to the class, at least sit down and listen, at least sit down and go. 
Rabbi Shippel kept inviting me for Chag here, Chag there. I started joining his classes as well. And I was just willing to ask the questions. And, you know, they spoke about tefillin. So I started putting tefillin, for example, and I would have this internal conversation with Hashem and I would ask him, you know, I don't know what it's worth. I don't know what it means. But if there's something there, show me that something is happening. And good things started to happen in my life on a personal level and, and when it comes to school, when it comes to work. And I just kept doing a bit more and a bit more. And at some point, I went with uh, Rabbi Gabi Danieli to a Shabbat in the Five Towns. And I went to the, this dinner and we went to a very nice family that hosted us. And I said, you know what, let me put my phone aside. And I put my phone aside and I finished the meal. It was very lovely. I enjoyed it a lot. And I said, you know what, I already put it aside for now. Let's, let's keep it aside and let's just, you know, let's see what, is, what keeping Shabbat is all about. So I go for the meals and I went to the prayers and I was sitting there and listening and trying to pray a bit. And of the sudden, after Mincha, I met a rabbi that his name is Rabbi Moshe Weinberger from the Five Towns. So a well-respected, well-known rabbi, unbelievable. And, you know, of the sudden I see this Hasid rabbi who's from Hungary as well in his, in his roots and someone who's loving and caring and just speaks to me in eye level. And he invited me to come to this mixer. Oh, you'll see girls there, you see this, there's music, there's dancing. I said, okay, fine, what, what could happen? And I go there and I see everyone with those big furry hats dancing in circles and <laughs> only Hasidish music. And I look, at, I look to the right, I look to the left, and I don't understand what I'm doing there. And then Rabbi Weinberger grabs me and pulls me all the way to the center for the like the inside circle and dances with me and then everyone's like you know uh, like the whole the whole atmosphere and i had goosebumps for the whole evening i really was so moved by the whole experience and i think that for me i understood that that really spirituality and torah and, and being an observant jew starts first of all at least for me personally from the spiritual component of it, from understanding there's, there's something here. We went along and we actually had Yechidu, so we sat down for a conversation, me and him, and he talked to me about the idea of how you can combine sports and, uh, and Torah and how you can really mesh it and how you can impact. And he gave me a story that I would never forget. He was uh, mentioning a community in, uh, in Poland that was about to light the candles for the last uh, night of Hanukkah. And they had a big community and they had this guy, Moshe, he gave as a name, that was on the outskirts of town. And he was not so observant, he wasn't so well versed in what's happening, but he was a very tall guy. So they all came into the shul and they were about to light the candles. And he stops the ceremony, the rabbi, and he says, where is Moshe? I need Moshe to come to the stage right now. So the ones next to him told him, come on, the, the rabbi is calling you. So he started to kind of hide in his chair. And the rabbi stopped again. My life is dependent on it. Where is he? And then they really pushed him. They said, you have to go. I mean, the rabbi said that his life depends on it. So he goes to, uh, to the rabbi and the rabbi asks him, Moshe, when you want to say something nice and sweet to your wife, what would you tell her? So he tells him, Rabbi, this is not so appropriate. Uh, what am I supposed to? He said, don't worry. Please answer my question. So he tells him, I'll tell her that I love her. So he asks him, but how would you do it? You're so tall and your wife is so short. What's, how does it work? So he said, I bend over and she goes on her tippy toes and then I'm able to whisper it in, in her ear. So he goes, he hugs him, he kisses him. They light the candles. Everyone dances, going home. 
only the Hasidim of the rabbis stain. And they're asking him, what was this whole story? This guy, your life depends <laughs> on him. What's going on? So he says, you need to understand that Hashem is always going to come closer and, and bend down to get closer to you. But you have to go on your tippy toes in order to actually listen to what he has to say. From that moment, I said, you know what? I'm going to listen. And I find myself, you know, slowly adding more Shabbat observancy and adding more mitzvot and trying to make sure that I go to Shachrit every day. And I went on a Hasidic trip with the Biala Rebbe. And I know I'm throwing a lot of rabbis' names here, but really they were so pivotal in my process that uh, it's important. And he, for the whole trip, we went to Ukraine, to the Baal Shem Tov, and we went to all these amazing stories. And he really encouraged me to start adding Torah to the basketball. And I came back from that year, it was 2018 by then. And we were in the middle of a season, we had a losing streak. And Gabe Leifert just joined in, we had, you know, some reinforced energy. And I walked up to one of our players, Tyler Hode, which uh, him and both of his brothers used to play for us for YU. And I told him, you know what, why would we sit and study some Torah before the game? So he says, you know what, I love it. I have this book that I'm reading, Olam Amidot. I told him I love a book that's called Mesilat Yesharim, The Path of the Just. Let's go, let's learn. So we study for five minutes and we win the game. Fine. We tell the guys, listen, <laughs> we won. Come join us. So the following game, a few more players come in. We study, we win again. We do it again, a few more players, we win again. We ended up seeing that every game that we learn about a topic, it connects to the game. So let's say we spoke about the trade of anger. We would play against a team that would always get technical fouls against, and we would, oh wow, this is really connecting to what's happening. We would have a game against a team we were much better at on paper, and we would get complacent. We talked about the Midat Anava, about humility, and, and so on and so on. And we won eight games in a row. And by then, the whole team is sitting in the locker room, including all the coaches, and we get to, the, to an away game in Farmingdale. And we are late to the game, and we say, you know what, we don't have time, we're not gonna study. So we lose the game in overtime. We look at each other like, listen, there's something here. We have to get back to it. And we kept going all the way throughout the season. And uh, thank God that was the first championship that we won in 2018. What the nicest thing was is that when we got to the NCAA tournament, Rabbi Kestenbaum, which wrote the book Olama Midot, actually went on speaker on the speakerphone. We were all sitting in the locker room and we heard him giving us a draw tour before the game. And it's a tradition that still goes to this day. Tyler took over after I uh, left Yeshiva University. And then uh, now we have a player that's called Matan Zakur that still carries on the torch. So the team, though, is a mix of religious kids and not yet religious kids, right? So how do they all react to this idea of studying Torah before games? I think that what a lot of people, when they start looking at learning Torah, they, they get startled because it's it sounds like, okay, I only have to learn Gemara or Halacha or these topics that are very complex and I don't understand what's happening. When we look at Torah, a lot of it is trying to improve our vessel, who we are as human beings, how we're more aware, how we're more cautious. And once you approach it this way, then it becomes something that's really is good for everyone. Who doesn't want to have personal growth? Who doesn't want to develop as a human being? And once you start coming in from that angle, and once you're this athlete who teaches and learns with you, and not this uh, necessarily a rabbi or a teacher or a parent, it becomes sometimes a bit more accessible. Got it. So you mentioned leaving YU. And before we get into what you did when you left, what's so fascinating about your story is that you had that decision to take that job or not. 
and all this stuff that came into your life because you chose to come to Yeshiva University, like, do you spend time thinking about if you had just gone in the other direction and kept playing and kept your career going, what would have happened to religion in your life? Absolutely. I see a lot of my friends who I grew up with, and they kept the route of playing basketball. So they live in the same exact, uh, for the most part, same exact lifestyle. They go to practice, they go to a party, they go to a restaurant, they, and, and it's it's a nice lifestyle. I'm not saying anything bad about it, but I feel like once I add a Torah to my life, there's always a gradual progression of what's happening in life, the responsibilities you add on yourself. You become a better human being. I Meaning you go into a Torah class, you would by default become a better human being. By just listening to good quality content of how to be a better husband, how to be a better friend, how to, you know, be more cautious with your words and actions. And if you go to just a regular seminar, it doesn't always happen. And living a lifestyle of as a secular Jew, you're not really thinking, why was I created? What do I need to do in this world? How do I serve something a bit higher than just go to work nine to five, go home or go play basketball, go home and it's something that I'm grateful every single day for Hashem to really open my eyes and show me that there's another way. Okay, so then you end up leaving Yeshiva University. And this is a point where I have to give a shout out to Avi Proctor, who I know is a friend of yours and connected us for this interview. So are you now involved with him in some of the basketball camps and programs that you're doing? Yes, so uh, Avi and I are directors of a program that's called Jump Shot. And it's really a special program when we take these lessons of basketball training Again, with exceptional athletes and coaches and people that come in from ex-NBA players to professional coaches in Israel to Joe Schwartz, who is the assistant coach now for YU. So we really try to keep it as a, a family environment, but very, very professional. And then we also have the component of studying Torah every day and traveling Israel and seeing the country and getting to meet Israeli Navy SEAL officers that go ahead and give us workouts on the beach and talk to us about excellence and how you, you know, become a better leader and strive for, you know, fight for your life sometimes in some situations and getting to experience Shabbat together in, in the land of Israel. And it's something really, really unique that for years I was doing to some capacity, while why you, after why you, and it really brings all these pieces together, I think, in a beautiful way. Right, so it's bringing the two things that are really so important to your life together. You've got the tour journey that you're on, plus your whole basketball journey, and you can bring them together for kids. These are for high school kids, for the summer programs? Yes, so uh, we're actually targeting kids from 8th grade to 11th grade, and we have different divisions. Each coach works with his age group, and uh, it's it's special because you see kids really from all over, all across America coming in and meeting kids from Israel and actually experiencing camp days with them and seeing guys who are Olim that come into the camp as well and sharing some thoughts with them. We have a middle of the week, which we work on one trait every single week. So one week would be working on our purpose, trying to understand what's unique about what I do in this world. And then another week would be about the trait of anger. How do I control my anger? How do I control my emotions? How do I channel them in the right direction? It goes by week by week and you have a progression there. The kids get these constant reminders. So we have these Ve'avta bracelets. 
So it is basically our bracelets that speak about loving your fellow as you love yourself. But when it looks on yourself, you have a white side to the bracelet and a black side to the bracelet. Essentially, the white side is my good traits. It's what's good about me, what's good about what I do. And then there's the bad side, which is me pressing the snooze button in the morning and trying to, to slip in. And we always choose to put the white side on top. And those constant daily reminders that we use and we actually, you know, you see it in front of your eyes like Le Havdil, but again, like you put it fill in in the morning like you see a mezuzah when you walk in the door. Those are all small reminders to remind you to keep working on becoming a better human being and keep working on becoming a Baal Mitzvot and a Baal Torah and being able to study and learn. And it really shifts you back in the right direction, I think. And I would imagine with all these high school kids that you're meeting, you're becoming like a feeder for YU because you, you meet like tons of kids and there you're able to see, whoa, there's something special about like these one or two and then you're connecting them to YU when you see the potential that they have? Absolutely. So Elliot and I are still good friends. And every single time I see, even not just in America, but even in Israel, I have my brother is still coaching professionally now in Israel. And once in a while, he sees these kids in high school that are really talented, but not always good enough to go and play the top divisions in Israel. So he goes ahead and refers it or players that used to play with me and know younger guys. So we always have this nice, you know, exchange of here are some good guys you can look at. I'm going now, I live in Los Angeles now, so I see good guys on the West Coast. We have the, those exchanges. And really, it's my pleasure to, to be able to assist in any capacity. And I intend on continuing to do so. Beautiful. And so before we close the interview with our lightning round, I just wanted to get a sense from you. You clearly are a guy who has goals and goes after things and growth oriented. So what's next in your basketball and Jewish journey? What's on the, the bucket list of things you want to do in the next few years? Right now, I mix between working for JP Morgan Chase in the mornings to afternoon programs in Los Angeles when we do basketball and Torah bites at the end of each session and working with public school kids and then our summer programs. Really, my goal is to streamline it and make sure that every single Jew has a chance to get exposed to this approach, whether it's me doing it or others take this idea and run with it. But it's really just to outreach and be out there and come in from the, the informal sense of education and not necessarily come in and listening to a rabbi or to a parent or to a teacher. But yes, listening to a musician that can bring in Torah or listening to a, a specific athlete. You see Ryan Terrell's beautiful story and you see Jacob Steinmetz with his beautiful story. And the list goes on of Jewish athletes that take pride with what they do and they're able to represent the Jewish nation in a nice way. And I think that we need to really just continue to pass the torch with educating for Jewish leadership and do it in the right way. Um, so we're now expanding Jumpshot and we're now expanding Hapoel USA, which is my company in, in Los Angeles. And our goal is just to, to be able to allow more kids to be a part of it. Okay, so let's now jump to our lightning round. I'm going to ask you some super fast questions to close out the interview. I have a feeling that an athlete like you is going to excel at this. <laughs> I hope so. All right, so first question. If we have a listener, say, in elementary or middle school who loves basketball, let's say he's at a modern Orthodox yeshiva school and he's thinking, you know what, I think I have something here. I think that basketball could be something significant in my life. What advice would you give to a kid when he's, like, younger? Be consistent. Meaning there's a lot of kids who want to be Steph Curry, but between them shooting threes from the logo and them actually being on the court for a basketball game for the middle school varsity team college team they have to really work on the craft on a daily basis and take it seriously like anything in life 
And so you just mentioned Steph Curry, but who's a player in the NBA that you think a young kid should really actually try to emulate that is like playing in the right way that you think if you can watch the skills he has, watch the way he approaches the game, this is someone worth emulating? I really admire Yanis and the journey that he went through. Yes, he has, a, I think, a movie now that's called Hope and Disney Channel. Fantastic movie to watch. But he is a guy who came from nothing and really built his way up. He got to the league, was a skinny kid, couldn't shoot. And you see how he progresses every single season and he keeps outworking his, his teammates and he's the best player on the team. But he'll still come before them, after them. So I think that's one that they should follow and, and look at his work ethic. Okay, and then you mentioned when you were at YU how you would study Torah before the game. So was there like a favorite Pusuk or a line or something you heard in a shear that you think applies like beautifully into basketball? One of the first sentences that Mesilat Yishorim starts with, and it's something that I always refer back to, So a person must first understand and re-clarify what is your purpose in this world. If someone loves basketball, and that's his unique way to change the world, try to understand how through the sport that I'm doing, I'm being able to, to make an impact. If I'm a good lawyer, what can I do to give back? If I'm a real estate developer, how am I changing the world and how am I impacting the Jewish world? Torah mitzvot is, is something that we're all obligated to do. But still, each one of us is unique, right? And it's almost like pieces of the puzzle that together we become this beautiful picture. But individually, each one is one piece of a puzzle. Beautifully said. And Daniel, you are officially out of the lightning round. And I want to thank you for sharing your basketball and Jewish journey on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.